Luke 1, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted the, to, the child to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately... His mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we read of the birth of this miraculous child, John, who would be called the Baptist, Lord, we marvel at your great grace upon Zechariah and Elizabeth, visiting them in their childlessness and providing them with a son. But Lord, we thank you far more for who this son was and for what this son represented the fulfillment of your promises. And we thank you especially for the one to whom this son pointed, Jesus Christ, God the Son in human flesh. And we thank you, Lord, for the change that we see in Zechariah's heart, for one who, who moved from doubt to faith, for one who had his priorities in rejoicing, for one who had his priorities in worship, in right order because of your work in his heart. And so, Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we pray in confidence in that the same Holy Spirit who conceived, who conceived the Christ in Mary's womb is the same Holy Spirit who is at work in our hearts even now. Lord, the same Holy Spirit who 
empower the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and yes, also empower the ministry of John the Baptist and empower these words of prophecy that we read this morning. The same Holy Spirit who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead is at work in our hearts. And so, Lord, we approach your word with holy confidence. Help us, Lord, we pray, to respond to your faithfulness with faithfulness of our own. The faithfulness that you have granted to us along with the gift of faith that is also your gift for our good and your glory. Amen. Imagine yourself in Zechariah's position. You and your wife, Elizabeth, have waited so long for a child. You've prayed so hard for a child. But once you're aged, you'd given up hope that God would answer that prayer. In fact, you'd given up hope a long time ago that God would ever answer that prayer. Nonetheless, you faithfully continued to serve God. You walked in righteousness, blamelessly obedient to God. And then came the day when your division was called for duty in the temple. And at your amazement, when the lot was cast to see who would offer incense in the holy place, the lot fell on you. Together with the other priests who had collected fire and collected the incense, you went into the holy place. And then they left as you approached the altar to offer the sacrifice of incense. And then suddenly, an angel appeared to you. Now you were terrified, understandably terrified, but the angel told you not to be afraid for your prayer had been heard. And then the angel told you some, some shocking and frankly unbelievable news. Your wife, your aged wife, who you thought was barren, would bear you a son. You're to call him John. And the angel continued that you would be full of joy. In fact, that many would be filled with joy at his birth. But the angel continued telling you that your son would be great before the Lord, that he must not drink wine or strong drink, and that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And his ministry would be to turn the hearts of the children of Israel towards their God and the hearts of the fathers to the children and that your son would go before God in the spirit and power of Elijah to accomplish all of this to prepare the way for the Lord this was the best news that you'd ever heard and you wanted to believe, you tried to believe, but you doubted. And so you asked the angel to give you a sign. After all, your, your mind was filled not with what God can do, but with, with doubts, with the fact that, that you were old and your wife is old too. And then the angel spoke firmly to you, declaring, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be unable to speak. You'll be silent because you'd not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And when you finally came out of the holy place, you weren't able to speak 
And people wondered, but as you, you motioned with your hands trying to explain somehow what had happened to you inside the holy place. When you got home at the end of your duties, you, you communicated what had happened to your wife on a, a wooden tablet that was covered with wax. And, but then it happened. The, the miracle happened. Elizabeth conceived. What the angel had said would come to pass had indeed come to pass. And your wife kept the pregnancy hidden for five months and then declared, thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among people. Then the next month, six months into your wife's pregnancy, you had another visitor. No, it wasn't Gabriel again. This time, it was your wife's young relative, Mary, who's betrothed to Joseph. You couldn't hear what was going on, but, but your, your wife and Mary were so excited. Your, your wife spoke more excitedly than you had ever heard her in your entire marriage. And then Mary burst forth with what seemed to be a song. Oh, how you wanted to be able to hear what was going on in this moment, but you were kept apart from it. Oh, you wanted to speak to be able to contribute something to what was going on, but you were unable you were forced to remain in the background. They, they tried their best to explain what was happening to you using this, this same wooden tablet, and again, you were utterly amazed. Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph, but unmarried, had conceived. The, the, they're telling you that she had conceived through the Holy Spirit. Earlier, you would have doubted her story. You would have thought, no, they've been immoral. This was too incredible not to be true, and you'd already seen so much. After all, if your wife could conceive, then maybe, just maybe, God was able to, to help this virgin to conceive. Maybe, just Mary, maybe this child in Mary's womb would be the fulfillment of all you'd hoped for, far more than you'd ever hoped even for your own child. Maybe this child in Mary's womb was the fulfillment of all that Israel hoped for and had hoped for for so long. God had remembered his mercy and his covenant with Abraham and would help his people. Mary continued to stay with your family for, for another, with you and your wife for another three months. And then finally the day arrived. Your wife went into labor. The baby came, and sure enough, just as the angel had declared, it was a boy. And you and Elizabeth were overjoyed, and neighbors and relatives came to, to celebrate with you. But still, you couldn't speak. You had so much joy in your heart, but there was no outlet for that joy. Now, you'd expected, as the words of the angel had said, that, that when these things were fulfilled, that you would be able to speak. But here, when the baby was born, you were still unable to speak. But then eight, time, eight days later came the time for the circumcision. And you notice that there was some debate taking place between your wife and your, your visitors. And they turned to you, asking you, what was your decision? Motion to you about what, what did you want the, the boy to be called? 
And he motioned again for your writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And immediately, your mouth was open. Immediately, you could speak. I wonder, if this was you, what would be the first words that would come out of your mouth after over nine months of silence? What would Zechariah's first words be? Well, Zechariah offers a benediction, a blessing that is appropriate, most appropriate at the time of a new birth, especially this miraculous sort of birth. Now, usually when we think of benedictions, we, we think of benedictions as a pronouncement of blessing from God upon the people. When Joshua gets up at the service to offer a pastoral benediction, he's pronouncing God's blessing upon you. But this is not a benediction from God upon the people. This is a benediction from a person to God. Zechariah's first words are a benediction upon God. Now, benediction, any blessing would be appropriate, but this is even more appropriate. Now, what comes next? Well, most parents, even godly parents, once they've, they've, they've praised God, they would, they would begin to talk about the babies that we talked about with the children, that they would, they would, would rejoice in this baby. They would bless the child. But not this time. This time, Zechariah does not bless his own child first. He blesses the child in Mary's womb. This is about the only time, I think, that it would be appropriate to bless someone else's child first instead of your own. Zechariah understood. Zechariah understood the reality of what was taking place here. Zechariah had learned his lesson. Zechariah had learned the folly of doubting God's word. He had learned the wisdom of trusting God. By blessing Jesus, not only are we seeing the priority of, of Jesus over John, but we're also seeing the priority of Jesus in Zechariah's heart, even over his own miracle son. The main point of this passage is once again the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. However, we're also seeing that the proper response to God's faithfulness is faithfulness. Zechariah trusts God, and so God, he knows that God is going to do that what God has said he was going to do, so that we can do what we're supposed to do. As Daryl Bach says, salvation leads to service. In Luke 1, 57 to 80, there, there are two major sections. In verses 57 to 66, we see God fulfilling his promises and Zechariah's faithful response. And then in verses 67 to 80, we see further implications of, of God fulfilling his promises and Zechariah's further response. Again, God does what God says God is going to do. And what should God's people then do in response? So first of all, in verses 57 to 66, we see John's birth and Zechariah's response. The day arrives. As Gabriel had promised, the aged Elizabeth gives birth to a son. And of course, we see a parallel here with, with Abraham and Sarah, both aged. Abraham at 100, Sarah at 90, giving birth to Isaac. God has once again fulfilled his promises. 
But these aren't just promises to Elizabeth and Zechariah. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. This promise comes straight out of the book of Malachi, the last words in the last book of the Old Testament. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Remember, after that, for 400 years, there had been silence until Gabriel came to Zechariah in the temple. And then the floodgates opened. Not only did Gabriel prophesy, but Elizabeth prophesied, Mary prophesied. Even John in the womb was, was in a sense, prophesying as he jumped for joy. But still, Zechariah couldn't speak. Even now, as, as neighbors and relatives arrived to celebrate them, John still couldn't, couldn't speak. And we think about the way that, that when, when people, when, when, when there's a birth, people come around to rejoice. Our church family is, is rejoicing with the birth of Elizabeth. This is a, this is a natural thing for, for family and, and friends to do. But as I said a few moments ago, that Zechariah was, was on the outside looking in. He was unable to speak. He was unable to, I, would, I believe, even hear what was taking place. So it's natural to rejoice at, at a birth. But this joy, this joy is the beginning of the fulfillment of another promise from God. Back in verse 14, the angel had said that, that many would rejoice at the baby's birth. So, so here we have these, this family and the relatives and, and neighbors coming around to, to celebrate. This is, this is a first fruits, really, so to speak, of, of the joy that, that many more would, would experience at the birth of John the Baptist. Earlier, Elizabeth had spoken of her reproach among people because she was barren. But now people are rejoicing with her. This, this reproach that she'd experienced was completely gone, forgotten at the birth of this child. Luke describes this as, as the Lord's great mercy. The Lord's great mercy. This is a, a common theme throughout this chapter, throughout Luke 1. Mary had spoken twice of it in her Magnificat, and it's used three times more in this passage. And there's another parallel here between Mary's Magnificat in that Mary had spoken of the great things that the Lord had done for her and of his mercy. Now we see that the Lord has shown great mercy to Elizabeth. There's another parallel between these, these stories that are running parallel in the scriptures. The story of, of John and the story of Jesus. But don't miss the fact that again we see that the Lord is working in the lives of individuals. Of simple people to accomplish his plan of redemption. Well, now the eighth day arrives. According to the ceremonial laws outlined in, in Genesis 17, 12, this was to be the day of circumcision. And again, relatives and friends would gather for the celebration. This circumcision marked the, the child's entrance into the covenant community. Remember, the, the first time that we, we learned of circumcision being performed is with the, the circumcision of Abraham and his household as part of the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to see more about the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant in a few moments. Zechariah and Elizabeth are, are seen to be acting faithfully, responding faithfully to this command of the ceremonial law. But notice that the child has not yet been named. 
In the Old Testament and in Jewish culture, apparently naming usually took place right away, but, but here at the birth of, of John and also at the birth of Jesus in, in Luke 2.21, names are given upon circumcision. The people naturally thought that, that, John would, that it wouldn't be John, that he'd be Zechariah after his father. But the angel had told Zechariah what the child's name was to be. It was to be John in verse 14. But Elizabeth answered her neighbors emphatically, No, he shall be called John. But still they pressed, pointing out that no one in their family had that name. It was customary to give children family names. You can, you can imagine this, the desire, the natural desire in, in Elizabeth and in Zechariah to, to name this, this child after their family, especially after Zechariah, given the, the circumstances of his birth. Now in our family, we, we've named the children of my old age after family members. Liam is actually William Kenneth after my dad and Jane's dad. Owen is, is John Owen, kind of after me, but more after the Puritan John Owen. Vivian is Vivian Margaret after my mom's middle name and Jane's mom. We, we wanted in naming our children to honor our families. Now there's nothing wrong with that. But this time it would have been wrong. This time it would have been disobedient to the Lord to, to name the child anything but that which the angel had commanded, who had given God's word to them. But the crowd didn't understand that, and so they, they turned to Zechariah, making signs to ask his opinion. Uh, so again, apparently he was deaf as well, and, but it, this is where he motioned for, for the, the tablet. This is not an iPad. It's a wooden board covered with wax, and, and he wrote, his name is John. Notice that Zechariah did not say his name will be John, but that his name is John. John was already his name. Zechariah was obedient to the Lord's command. Again, he has learned his lesson. And Zechariah was faithful. And his faithfulness was in response to the Lord's faithfulness. But the people wondered. Now the name John means Yahweh is gracious. Zechariah's priority was to honor not his family, not himself, but the Lord. And this time, he didn't doubt. This time, he had faith. He and Elizabeth would not let societal custom distract them from their duty to the Lord, from obedience to the Lord. I wonder, as an aside, do you ever let societal custom distract you from obedience? Are the things that your culture tells you to do, even subtly, that you know aren't right, but you bow to the culture instead of bowing to the Lord? Are there goal issues where you bow to the culture, or where you side with the culture instead of siding with the Lord? Are there moral issues where you side with the culture instead of siding with the Lord? Are there priority issues where you side with the culture instead of siding with the Lord? If so, you'll want to rethink which side you're choosing. As for Zechariah, he was choosing to follow God. Nine months earlier, he had doubted, but he was demonstrating in this place now faithfulness in, in his response to the Lord's faithfulness. As soon as he had written his name as John, immediately his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. 
Now he was really demonstrating faithfulness. He was immediately able to speak. Well, finally, the fulfillment of God's word through the angel in verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Immediately is often used in the book of Luke to describe what happens when God does something miraculous. For example, when Jesus rebuked the fever in Peter's mother-in-law, she immediately rose and began to serve them. Luke 4, 39. And, and when Jesus touched the man with leprosy in Luke 5, 13, immediately the man was healed. And the first words to come out of Zechariah's mouth are praise to the Lord. Zechariah is revealing what was in his heart over nine months of silence. He praised God. Again, he was demonstrating his faithfulness in response to the Lord's faithfulness. The, the priority of worship is the right response in one who has received God's blessing. And God had withheld the, the normal blessing of a child from Zechariah and Elizabeth until this moment because God had a plan. Now I know that childless couples are not always blessed with natural children. I know that God does not always give you what you earnestly desire. However, I do know that when God withholds from you a blessing in one area, it's because he wants to bless you in another. Even here, this, this trial in Zechariah of being, of being a deaf mute. Zechariah was praising God in his heart. Do you praise God in the midst of trials, in the midst of a, of a trial of, of unmet desires and unanswered prayers, do you praise God? When you begin to understand that God is sovereign and loving and wise, even in the midst of your trials, it enables you to be able to, to begin to praise God even before God answers your prayers. And then you also will be showing faithfulness in response to the Lord's faithfulness even if you have not yet seen it. But Zechariah's was not the only response to these events. Fear came upon his neighbors. And this doesn't refer to terror but to awe. Again, we see this response commonly in Luke and Acts. Fear in response to the miraculous. A news spread throughout that region. The people laid these things up in their hearts. They weren't just wondering about the miraculous birth, but about what God would do through the child. What will this child be, they wondered. What will John become? Of course, this introduces the, the bigger question, the, the question that the people didn't even yet know to ask. What will Jesus become? Word about John spread. And soon enough, John would spread the word. And so John the Baptist became the first Baptist preacher. Thanks for those who got that. Zechariah is about to give the answer to that question. Zechariah is about to reveal for us what the child will become. In fact, Zechariah is about to reveal for us what both children will become. And here Luke interjects and tell us, tells us that the right hand of the Lord was with John. It pointed to a, a mighty work of God. God's power is with John. 
So then let's look at Zechariah's Benedictus in verses 67 to 80. Last week we saw that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah is no longer in the background. Zechariah is, is no longer separated from these events. He now comes into the forefront and launches into a hymn of praise. It's very often referred to as the Benedictus. Like Mary's Magnificat, is, it is named after it's the first word of the, the blessing in Latin. Benedictus is Latin for the word blessed. Also like the Magnificat, it's full of, of allusions to the Old Testament. Here, there's, there's allusions to the Psalms, to Isaiah, to Micah, to Malachi. Zechariah is remembering the past and looking forward to the future. Zechariah is prophesying the Messiah as the fulfillment of God's promises to God's people. And especially evident here are the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. Zechariah is, is prophetically providing God's commentary on the events surrounding the birth and the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. Again, we see themes, these themes that are repeated throughout chapters 1 and 2 as, as Zechariah, Zechariah describes the singular purpose of his, of his son who was just born as well as the singular purpose of, his, of the baby that was in Mary's womb. They have one purpose. They have one goal. Different ministries. But one goal. Joel Green explains that the Benedictus weaves the stories of John and Jesus into one tapestry of God's purpose. Again, Zechariah is answering the question, what then will this child be? He will be the prophet of the Most High. Mary began with what God had done for her and then for the nation. Zechariah begins with what God had done for the nation, then brings in his son and his role in preparing the way for Jesus. So there, there are four stanzas here. The first stanza, verses 68 to 70, Zechariah blesses God. He begins in verse 68. Blessed be the God of Israel. This is a common way to introduce Thanksgiving. Zechariah's song, this is Zechariah's song of Thanksgiving. In fact, the, throughout the Psalms, at the end of, of the first four books in the Psalms, we have the same words. Blessed be the God, the, God, the Lord, the God of Israel. God has visited his people. After millennia of waiting, the Messiah has come. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now again, Zechariah doesn't speak about his own newborn son, but about the, the coming son, the Messiah, who has been conceived in Mary's womb. Again, Jesus is greater. The Lord has visited his people. I want you to note here that, that, that just like in the Magnificat, that the the verbs here in our English Bibles are presented as, as in the past tense. Zechariah is, is using the, the same verb tense in the original language for most of, of the Benedictus that Mary did in, in her Magnificat. But from the context of in the Magnificat, we can, we can see that, that the beginning of it was, was clearly speaking about the past, but then it, it moved into something. Is that, well, is it, is it the past or is it the future? And if you remember, I concluded that, that there were elements of both past and future here, the, the, that, he, that she was looking past 
to the past to God's faithfulness and prophesying about what God was going to do in the future. Well, this time is, is similar. Our English Bibles translate this as a past tense. The Lord has visited. The Lord has redeemed. Now, in one sense here, we see that the Lord has already visited because remember, the, the Messiah has come. He, he has arrived. He's still in Mary's womb, but, but he is here. He is on the scene. He is on the earth. The Lord has visited and the Lord has redeemed. Well, that's looking to the future, isn't it? The redemption has not yet come. The Messiah has come, but the redemption would take place through the life and ministry of Jesus. Only verse out of this whole out of this whole hymn of praise, it's only verse 78 that has, has a future tense. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. In the rest of the Benedictus, it appears at first glance that, that Zechariah is speaking about the past. But again, the Messiah has come. The Messiah has arrived. And, and so th there's a, a sense in which this is prophetic. He's speaking of these things as though they are guaranteed. And from the Lord's perspective, they are guaranteed. It's similar, as I mentioned last week, to Romans 8.30, where we read that those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Those are all, in English, as past tense verbs. And, but our glorification has not yet taken place. Our glorification is yet to come. So, so in the prophetic sense, our, our glorification is guaranteed. And so is the redemption that Zechariah spoke of. Now for God's people, the visitation of the Lord is great news. Luke often uses this term to describe God's, <clears throat> God's salvation through Jesus Christ. For example, Luke 7, 16, when Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son, we read, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. The, the visitation of the Lord means redemption for God's people, a deliverance from their enemies so that they are free to serve him as we'll see in a moment. So it's a time for rejoicing for God's people. This redemption in this visitation is good news, but the visitation of God is not good news for God's enemies. But God did not visit here to make war on man. God visited to make peace. God has redeemed his people. He has purchased them from bondage to sin and Satan and death. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is that you will see the full meaning of the fact that you are the recipient of God's visitation, of God's redemption. And to see all that has, has happened to purchase your redemption. Now we, we often sing, we sang a few weeks ago, Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This is, a, this is a, a hymn that is commonly sung at the Christmas season. But I like the version that says, Rejoice, Rejoice, Emmanuel. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. For Emmanuel has indeed come. Now this visitation and, and redemption have, have connotations of the Exodus. In Exodus 4.31, as the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, and they bowed their heads in worship. 
So this idea of, of the Lord's visitation is, is that it, God sees the affliction of his people and the Lord visits to save them, to redeem them from their enemies. Zechariah continues. The Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now a horn, it, it was a symbol of strength. Think of the, the horns of a bull. This is a mighty salvation. Jesus is mighty to save. Remember, we learned from Gabriel in, in 125 that, that Joseph was in the lineage of David. And so, so Jesus is in the house of the servant, of his servant David. But also we see in the genealogy, the latter half of chapter 3, that Mary is in the lineage of David as well. We also learn from Gabriel in verse 32 that the Lord God will give to him, to the Messiah, the throne of his father David. This mention of David obviously points to the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. God's redemption through the Davidic king. David was a type of Christ. David's kingship points ahead to the kingship of Christ. David's greater son. And so then Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Davidic covenant. This speaks of the, the kingdom rule of the Davidic son. And Luke is going to come back to this theme and pick up on it again in Acts. The king is coming and his kingdom is coming with him. Now the people in that time would have been thinking primarily of political deliverance. Israel was under the occupation of a Roman army. Simply the, the most recent in a string of foreign armies that had conquered them. Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and then came the Romans. And Israel obviously wanted freedom from these oppressors. And they wanted this messianic king to rule over them. But the Messiah came to do so much more. In his first incarnation, Jesus came to bring spiritual deliverance. Political deliverance for God's people will come. It will be finally fulfilled at his second coming. We still await the fulfillment of that promise. We look forward to the return of Christ, to his universal rule and reign. So the ministry of the Messiah and salvation is not either or. It's both and. This is the fulfillment of the oldest and greatest promise of the Old Testament. In verse 70, Zechariah says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Holy prophets speak God's word. Notice that it's, it's mouth singular and prophets plural. One mouth, many prophets. They, they're speaking from God with one voice proclaiming his word. Like in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They're also the holy prophets. They are prophets who are set apart for God's service and they are of old from Israel's earliest days. 
Luke uses this, this kind of, of terminology repeatedly as well to, in reference to, to God's promise of redemption. For example, Peter's uh, sermon in Acts chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Of course, Peter there is speaking of the return of Christ. So again, the arrival of the Messiah is the fulfillment of past promises and also the fulfillment of future promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And all of those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Just think for a moment about the privilege that you have of living now at this point in redemption history, 2,000 years after these events had taken place, knowing so clearly so much of what all of this means. But again, we, we, we wait a time when the rest of these promises will be fulfilled at Christ's return. We, we can trust that God is going to fulfill those promises too, just as God has fulfilled the rest of his promises. And this is the hope that our brothers and sisters are, are, are engaging in now. They're, they're resting in the hope that God will fulfill his promises. Our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith at this very moment are resting in God's promises. God will fulfill all of his promises through Christ. Is that your hope? Are you hoping in Christ alone for the salvation that can be only be found in Christ alone? Now the second stanza, more briefly, from verses 71 to 75, where Zechariah prophesies what God will do. But notice here in this stanza, Zechariah still makes no mention of his newborn son. He talks about the purpose of the coming of the Messiah in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Again, he speaks of, a, of, a, of this as, a, a, future, as, a, as, a, as a, a future event, as if it's already taken place. At the time Zechariah had said this, the people had not yet been delivered from their enemies. Again, the people would have been largely thinking of political enemies from the Romans. But again, the Messiah would come to deliver them and us from far more deadly enemies. The world the flesh, and the devil from our sin. God's mercy to the fathers is being fulfilled. This, this focus is, is on God's covenant-keeping mercy. Again, it's a parallel with Mary's Magnificat. God is motivated by his covenantal faithfulness to extend mercy to his people. God is faithful, pouring out his love on his people as he works for their behalf. Verse 73 like Mary, Zechariah mentions Abraham, the oath that, that the Lord swore to Abraham. This is obviously reference to the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus as the promised Messiah is not only the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, but also of the Abrahamic covenant. That all of those Old Testament covenants point to the new covenant in Christ's blood. Through the Messiah, Abraham's offspring and all the nations of the earth will be blessed as we saw in, in Genesis 12, 1 to 3 and repeatedly throughout that, that whole toledote of the generations of Isaac. But notice that this was not only for their deliverance. 
that their deliverance was, was not an end unto itself, but it was for their service of the Lord. Verses 74 and 75, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, hear this, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Well, first look back for a second to the end of verse 73, that God is granting this. Serving God is a privilege. It's a gift from God for you to serve God. Do you see it as that way? Do you see serving God as a blessing that comes to you from God? The purpose of your deliverance is to serve God. You have been delivered from slavery to Satan, sin, and death to serve God. The, verbs, the verb serve here it, it's, it's refers to, to religious rites that are a part of worship. You're free to worship God without fear. In holiness, you are, are set apart. And in righteousness, that is in obedience. Daryl Bach explains that, that this reflects an attitude that respects God's moral demands in obedience and conforms us conforms to his call to righteousness, undefiled, undistracted worship of God. And this is for all time. You've been set free to serve God today. And you've been set free to serve God for eternity. This idea is, is common in the Psalms, where the psalmist asks the Lord for deliverance and then promises that he will serve. Psalm 51 is probably the best known example. Please turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 51 for a moment. Psalm 51. Verses one, in verses 1 to 12, David cries out for forgiveness. And in verses 13, 39, David promises to serve. Have mercy on me, O God, verse 1. And then down in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And, and it, it's also worship. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So David has been forgiven, has been set free from sin in order to serve God. In Hebrews 13, 15, we read, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Our privilege is, this, is the sacrifice of, of praise. I'm convinced more and more that, that what God wants is you. God wants you, all of you, to serve him from a heart of love, from a, from a heart of worship. God doesn't need your stuff. God, God doesn't need your, your outward obedience. God wants you. You are the bride of Christ. Jesus died not to save the, the nameless, faceless mass of humanity, but to save his people. God died. God the Son gave up his, his, in his, in his human flesh, God gave up his life and the cross to purchase you from the dead so that you can be in intimate relationship with him, to, to walk in obedience and love 
to him, serving him, rejoicing in him, praising him. As I said earlier from, from Daryl Bach, salvation leads to service. Has your salvation led to service? I remember so well at, the, at my prayer, at my conversion. I, I didn't say the sinner's prayer. I just said, Lord, whatever is left of this wreck of a life is yours. Please forgive me. There was a radical turning point in my life. I went from, from serving sin, from serving the devil, from, from serving everything that was, was an enemy of God and seeking to serve God. My earnest desire was to, to spend my life poured out for Christ. But too often, I don't live as though my life is God's. What about you? If you have been saved from death, you can serve God fearlessly in the strength that he provides. Yes, you and I repent when we fail to do this. But increasingly, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, our lives are conformed to Christ and our lives are spent in service to God. This is what God requires of us. Is your life growing in service that shows that you're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit? In the third stanza, in verses 76 and 77, Zechariah prophesies what John will do and really what God is going to do through John. Now it's only now, down in verse 77, that he begins to talk about his own son. And he prophesies about his son's ministry that he'll be the prophet of the Most High. So even in talking about his son, his son is not an end unto himself. His, his son is pointing to the Messiah. He'll be the prophet of the Most High. Jesus, remember, is the son of the Most High, verse 32. So what, what we're finding out here is that, is that John is going to be the prophet of God. In Luke 7, 26, Jesus will say that John is a prophet, but more than a prophet, that he is a messenger who prepares the way. In verse 28 Jesus, of chapter 7, Jesus says that no man is greater than John. Again, John is great, but Jesus is God. John's greatness is because of Jesus. John is great because Jesus is God. And John remembers the, the first prophet in 400 years. He is the promised prophet from Malachi, as I mentioned earlier. Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So John the Baptist is the prophesied prophet. 
John will prepare the way for the Most High. He is the fulfillment of God's promise that, that we saw through Gabriel one seventeen, preparing the people for the Messiah. John goes before the Lord Jesus, preparing the way for him. And the way that John prepares the way in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John will proclaim the message of salvation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John would introduce the baptism of repentance. Faith, the kind of faith that results in repentance is saving faith. Zechariah 2 is, is showing that he is presenting this prophecy in faithfulness. Remember, this is the same guy who doubted back at the beginning of chapter 1. That doubt is gone. And John 2 is presented as faithfully serving God. John will have the same goal as Jesus, the identical goal as Jesus, but a completely different role. But brothers and sisters, understand that you have a similar ministry to that of John the Baptist. I'm not the only John the Baptist here this morning. Turn with me please in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 17 and following. Notice that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation there at the end of verse 18. That that through Christ, God is reconciling people to himself and you have been given this ministry of reconciliation. Not counting people's trespass against them. We have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20. God is making his appeal through us. At the end of verse 20. Under God's authority, you can say to people, on behalf, we implore you, in behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You have been given a very similar ministry to that of John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the Messiah. Not to prepare the way for the Messiah in his first incarnation, but to prepare the way for his return. Messiah is coming to save his people, but to send all of his enemies into eternal destruction. And you have been given the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to pull people out of the fire. Well, finally, the fourth stanza, verse 79. Zechariah prophesies what Jesus will do, but again, he's prophesying what God will do. Zechariah is returning to the ministry of the Messiah. Sorry, 78 and 79. Zechariah is returning to the ministry of the Messiah. His focus is on the coming salvation. And again, notice the theme of, of mercy like we saw earlier in this passage and, and also in Mary's Magnificat. God's compassion is a, a common theme throughout Luke and, and Acts throughout the whole New Testament. Notice in verse 79 that the, the Messiah will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Again, this theme of, of light versus darkness you'll find throughout the scriptures. Quite commonly, as we heard earlier in John's gospel account, the people who are sitting in darkness and the shadow of death, you know what that feels like. To be in darkness and in the shadow of death. As I said earlier, I was, I was saved. I came to faith in a, in a psychiatric hospital. I was in darkness and I was under the shadow of death, but, but that is true for every one of us. But sadly, there's many people who are still there, but they're so accustomed to the darkness that they don't even realize it. But for God's people, for his sheep, we, we think of, of, the, of Psalm 23, of the, Jesus the Good Shepherd, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the hope of the believer who has been, been set free at the light of the gospel shone in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. You've been delivered into the kingdom of light. You know the way of peace. This is, this is not... Freedom from trouble, but freedom even in trouble. God not only leads you out of the darkness, but he leads you through the darkness. He provides you guidance through his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. He leads you in the way of peace. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. The beam from heaven, like the beam of a lighthouse, guides the ship as it cuts through the fog and warns them of the treacherous rocks. One of my favorite hymns is Charles Wesley's And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Are you sitting in darkness, in the shadow of death? Look for God's light in the gospel. For you also can be one on whom God's Son S-U-N in this sense, has risen. Are you a recipient of God's mercy in Jesus Christ? Have you turned from darkness to his light? Or do you refuse to come to the light because you love the darkness that hides your sin? Again, John the Baptist and Jesus come with the same goal to save God's people. But they have strikingly different roles. John will prepare the way, but Jesus is the way. John was the prophet of God, but Jesus is God. John proclaimed forgiveness, but Jesus provides forgiveness. And finally, like in Luke 66, for 166, Luke interjects this time to tell us that in verse 80 that that John grew and became strong and was in the wilderness until the beginning of his ministry. 
Now, the wilderness usually refers to the, the area west of the Dead Sea. It's a, a very barren desert. Almost nothing grows there apart from the rainy season. And John won't be mentioned again until chapter 3 at the beginning of his ministry, but only briefly as he prepares the way, to, as he prepares the way for, for Jesus' ministry. And then John will fade into, into the background. And Jesus will occupy the rest of John's, of Luke's gospel account. John was growing physically and John was growing spiritually. In Luke 3, 4 to, verses 4 to 6, John is going to quote, Luke rather is going to quote Isaiah 43 and 5, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So here at the, the birth of John the Baptist and in the, in the, the Benedictus of Zechariah, we're seeing the priority of Jesus in Zechariah's heart, even over his miracle son. Does Jesus have the priority in your heart over everything in your life? even above your children. The main point here, once again, is the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. But again, we also see that the proper response to God's faithfulness is faithfulness, a part of His people. Zechariah trusted God, and we also can trust God. Luke's readers and we can be confident that God will be faithful to his promises for he will point the way to salvation through his promised prophet and will accomplish salvation through his promised Messiah. God does what God says God is going to do. So many people here were still wondering, well, what would John become? But again, this introduces the bigger question. What will Jesus become? What is God going to do next? This prepares the way for the events that we're going to discuss next week. But we as God's people can be confident of what God is going to do next. We, we don't know when God is going to do what he has promised in, in sending his son, as, as a, not just in the first time, not just in the incarnation, but the parousia at his return. We don't know when that is going to happen, but we can be confident that it will happen. We can be confident that we can be faithful until the end because God is faithful for all eternity. Let's pray together. Glorious God, as we see your faithfulness, in sending the promised prophet to point the way to the promised Messiah. Lord, help us. Grant us faith through the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we might see your faithfulness and that we might respond in faithfulness. That we might know you. That we might worship you we might rejoice in you more fully. 
for our good and for the glory of your name. Amen.